What do we know of the specific errors at Ephesus? April 18, 2004 Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good, if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. 1 Timothy 1 5-11 Gordon Fee offers several pertinent points regarding the specifics, and lack thereof, of the false teachings that troubled the Ephesian church. The term, other doctrine, literally means another teaching. Occasionally in the Greek culture it also referred to novel teaching. In this sense a theological novelty is not an innocent or poorly thought out triviality. It more refers to a distinct perversion of the gospel. Occasionally Bible students and teachers alike will apply untested esoteric ideas to a passage that does not match the grammatical message or the historical contextual interpretation well at all. It appears that Paul has a more insidious error in mind, though such thoughtless creative imagination should be viewed with more caution than passivity. Thoughtlessness and biblical interpretation are dangerous partners indeed. Fee indicates that the verb tense suggests that Paul intends for those who have been teaching other doctrine to do so no longer. Rather than viewing these words as a generic prohibition, the intent is that current activities cease. The reference to fables and endless genealogies may suggest a synthesis of Hellenistic and Jewish teachings. This unusual blend would be predictable from Diaspora Jews, Jews dispersed throughout the Roman Empire as contrasted with Jews who lived in Judah. They had deep Jewish roots, but they also lived in a distinctly Greco-Roman culture, so one should not be surprised to see these ideas come together in an unusual combination. He rejects the likelihood of the common Gnostic philosophy that apparently invaded the Church of Colossae and possibly Corinth, also the recipients of 1 John. Gnosticism was a major problem for the 1st and 2nd century churches, but we need not make it the only problem that existed. Our Kent Hughes, adds to Fee's list, adding to the fear that a sound and well-instructed church can quickly fall into error, Hughes underscores the urgency of Paul's instructions to Timothy on behalf of the Ephesian church. 1 Timothy 1:19. some have rejected the message and make shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy 4:1. the Spirit specifically warns that some will depart from the true teachings and give more heed to doctrines of devils and seducing spirits than to the accepted truth of the gospel. 1 Timothy 5:15. some have already turned away from the truth to follow Satan. 1 Timothy 6.10, some will follow greed for money, piercing their spiritual selves through with a dart and griefs. 1 Timothy 6.21, some wander from the faith. Whatever the specific errors may have been Paul's emphasis on the qualifications and character of elders and deacons distinctly implies that the problem involved men who failed these qualifications. The details that Paul gives to the qualifications for church office make a point that we cannot minimize or ignore. We cannot compromise the qualifications listed without grave dangers to our churches. Perhaps one of the major points for us, given Peter's second letter and Paul's first letter to Timothy, is the multitude of problems that we are liable to face as a local church, along with a variety of reactions that we should adopt to deal with them. It is easy to embrace an overly simplistic view of problems that is either too lax or too harsh. You can't ignore cancer in your body and avoid the danger that it will eventually take your life. Neither can you ignore serious problems in your church without similar danger to the church's survival. Pollyanna is not a good role model for churches with problems. 
An equal danger on the opposite side of the question is the threat to the mission of a local church from unreasonable, not to mention unscriptural, harshness and severity. You don't amputate your arm because you discover a small splinter in your index finger. You focus on removing the splinter and healing the wound. This diversity of problems and of solutions may surface one of our most challenging problems. We have witnessed excommunication as a severe disciplinary measure, but we have largely become oblivious to any other form of possible discipline. We may have actually missed the true intent of excommunication by this attitude. With such in one know not to eat. 1 Corinthians 5:11 more likely refers to eating the communion supper than to a common meal. If so, the indication is that barring an errant member from the communion table was an accepted form of first-century church discipline, a measure that doesn't even register with us. If we assign a low value to the communion table, we will fail to see the appeal of such a measure to an errant member, adopting a so-what attitude rather than viewing this measure as a grave factor to a member's spiritual health and conscience. Regarding the specific emphasis that Paul puts on the qualifications for the office of deacons and elders in this letter, I offer another question. Typically we view ordination to these offices as a lifelong assignment. Without question, it should be so, but what does a church do when a man who holds one of these offices no longer qualifies for the office? The accepted reaction of our generation is to ignore it. Pretend it doesn't exist and hope that it will simply resolve itself. Occasionally I have encountered local churches that use the office of deacon specifically as a motivational tool with young male members. He is a good man. We should ordain him to the office of deacon and get him involved so that he will stay with us. The New Testament's teachings regarding this position know nothing of such a low view toward this office. Quite the opposite. Paul and other New Testament writers view the office as belonging to men who are seasoned in the faith and, by that seasoning, demonstrate a strong commitment to their faith and wisdom beyond their personal humanity regarding matters of church business and activity. Let these things first be proved. Does not allow for the office of deacon to be used as a motivational tool for young inexperienced members. Should a church revoke the ordination of a man who no longer meets the qualifications of either office? As radical as this question may seem, consider it only in light of Paul's teaching in this letter. Is it possible for a church to revoke a man's position in such a way as to help him respect the gravity of the office and the authority the church should have over his life? In New Testament times there were not several thousand varieties of Christian churches from which one might choose. There was one choice only. In our time, this question is difficult indeed. Before taking such a step a church should work with loving patience so as to ensure the faithful endurance of the man involved in his family. Loving patience works far better than harshness in matters of church authority and discipline. Some denominations practice appointing deacons for a limited period of time rather than for life. Since the office of deacon does not involve a divine call, but rather qualifications of mature faith and the other qualities that are listed, both in Acts 6 and in Paul's pastoral epistles, this is a possibility that does not at all conflict with Scripture. Since the office of elder or minister does involve a divine call, it presents a church with a greater challenge. My preference would be to work long and hard with the man in this office to help him come to terms with his deficiencies and regain his biblical qualifications. Many years ago a leading minister in an independent church in Southern California was confronted with his ungodly conduct toward a female member of the large church that he served. Upon learning that, the church's elders, this church practiced elder rule, had undeniable evidence of his sin, this man confessed to the sin and accepted the recommendation of the elders that he stepped down as pastor, as well as from any form of active ministry, for a season of supervised restoration. He agreed, but within a couple of months the leader of another denomination in the area contacted this man and offered him a lucrative position in public ministry in his church. The errant preacher immediately accepted the offer. However, despite limited success in his new position, 
this man never regained the unclouded respect in the Christian community that he formerly enjoyed. I believe that, had he submitted to the elders in his original church and actually worked with them to repent and to regain his self-discipline, he could have been restored to far greater respect than he ever regained by his chosen course. This episode was outside our fellowship, but because I listened to this man on a local Christian radio station, his situation intrigued me. I followed it with interest over several decades. In this case I believe the man erred so as to permanently cripple, if not terminate, his ministry by his running from his church's efforts to help him repent and regain his ministry. I believe his original church's approach of temporary and active ministry, followed by supervised restoration, could have helped him regain the respect of his position in time. His avoidance of the consequences of his action revealed a deeper flaw in his person that left him permanently handicapped to full respect. According to Paul in our study lesson, the glorious gospel is committed in trust to a man who fills the ministry. The man who honors the office must live up to that trust and retain the respect and confidence of those to whom he serves. Regardless of our church culture, we cannot take the teachings of Paul's pastoral letters lightly without bringing grave danger to our church and to its divinely assigned mission. Are we prepared to live this model seriously? Elder Joe Holder